This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. The other night, we had an incredible event with Jacques Pepin talking about his new book, The Art of the Chicken. We had a big audience. There was tons of laughing. Jacques is a longtime friend. And I thought, geez, we ought to just turn this into a podcast. So here it is. Legendary is a word tossed around too easily these days, but Jacques Pepin's life demands that description. He has written over 30 cookbooks beginning in 1967, has shared his cooking with a devoted TV audience for 40 years, garnering an Emmy and other awards along the way, has cooked for presidents, millions of Howard Johnson diners, <laughs> and fed a gazillion others along the way. He paints, he pranks, and he plays bull. And yet, despite these towering achievements, it is another quality that, to me, makes Jacques legendary. It is his capacity to experience joy and to share that joy with his family and friends and fans, doing so with food, with conversation, and of course, with love. Making life just a little bit better for all of us. That, my friends, Thank you. is a legend. Thank you. Thank you. In his latest book, The Art of the Chicken, all of these come together in the most exquisite way, combining his beautiful, exuberant paintings of chickens, his reminiscences of his life through the lens of this humble bird, and of course, with some chicken and egg recipes sprinkled throughout, all producing a delicacy as fine as one of Jacques' meals. Please provide a welcome appropriate for our legendary neighbor and friend. Thank you. Thank you. Ooh. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Where, where, where are we going from here? No, nowhere but down. Yeah. <laughs> so, Jacques, you come naturally by your your attachment to a chicken, right. starting uh, with the town of your birth. Yes. But you share in the book the unique beauty and appeal and global impact of a chicken. So share that yes. with us. Well, the chicken is probably the most um, democratic food because you have it in truck truck food, you know, cafeteria, in, and then you have it in a three-star restaurant with truffle under the skin. I've had chicken in West Africa, I've had chicken in Russia, I've had chicken in, in China. Uh, I don't think there is any place in the world uh, that doesn't have chicken to and the eggs. It's even more than the chicken. I remember in West Africa, a little family were really poor, but they had like three chicken, mostly for the eggs. They survive with that. They eventually kill the chicken when it's really too old to raise it. But uh, yes, uh, the chicken is a, a kind of universal food. I can probably do a book of uh, 10,000 recipes of chicken if you look at it from China to Turkey to West Africa to Italy, France, and so forth. So uh, what did you ask me? <laughs> uh, I was asking you, why the hell did you write a book about a chicken? <laughs> I'm old, you know, I forget things. <laughs> okay, so most boys at seven 
um, you know, they're sort of goofy and they don't really make much happen. But you, at the age of seven, actually cooked your first chicken. So explain how you elegantly, with a pack of boys, cooked this chicken. Well, it was, a, it was another world, you know. <laughs> and uh, I was born in France in a town called Bourg-en-Bresse, and the Bresse chicken are very well known in the area. So all the farm are chicken, and they are usually free. Uh, free chicken hanging around and so forth. So uh, it was uh, during the war, uh, at the end of the war, and uh, uh, we were in the field with my brother and a couple of older boys, like 10, 12 years old, and the, the, you know, they saw a chicken there running around, so they run after and, and plunge and grab the chicken and break his neck and all that, and we were next to the river decided to cook it. So they just take the mud, the mud from the, the side of the river and pack it around the chicken with, uh, with the gut inside and the, the, the feather and the whole thing. <laughs> and put it into an oil and cook it for like two, three hours. Then they break that shell and when you put it out, the, 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 the feather, the skin stick to it and so forth. And the rest of it was probably not worth a three-star restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> but any, anyway, we ate it. At that time, we ate anything. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yes. Do you have any recollection? Did it even taste decent? Not really. I mean, to tell you the truth. <laughs> yeah. So, so you, you talked about you were born in 1935? Yes. So you certainly had a firsthand experience um, during World War II and experienced the shortages that existed. And yes. your mother ran a restaurant. Right. And chicken was considered a luxury. Yeah, absolutely, yes. I mean, we, do, we did have chicken in, uh, that we raised and... Uh, Feed, him, feed the chicken, whatever, you know, peel that we're doing in the, in the kitchen and so forth. And uh, especially for the eggs and so forth. But uh, yes, I am a very uh, miserly cook and I use everything and that probably comes from my mother's. My mother's and my aunt and cousin too. I mean, I come 12 restaurants in France where I come from in my family, and the 12 of them were run by women. Uh, I was the first male to go into that business. So, uh, especially in Lyon, where I come from, it's pretty known for pretty formidable woman of Lyon who reached the three-star statue mm. of, a, of, a, of a great restaurant and so forth. So, yeah, that was uh, part, of, uh, part of who I was <laughs> when I was a kid. And Jacques, you, you describe in the book, which I thought was very cool, three ways that your mother would prepare chicken depending on whether it was just for the restaurant or it was for family or festive. Share with us what she did. I forgot what I said. <laughs> <laughs> no, do you want my, me to my, remind you? My, my mother would do the poulet à la crème, that was a big thing, you know, so poulet away, so she browned it very lightly and a bit of white wine and uh, water or chicken stock and onion, cook it 20, 25 minutes, and then remove the, and finish it with cream, with beautiful cream there and, uh, and some tarragon very often. So that was the classic one. Otherwise, of course, when you had an old chicken, then uh, she would stew it uh, for a long time because, but then we would eat a great soup and then, uh, the fat will come out, and she would do rio gras, rice with uh, chicken fat, you know, cook with it, and uh, the, the soup itself, plus the, the chicken who had been cooked, you know, for a long time and kind of fall apart as an, as an old chicken. Uh, I don't know what else I say. I don't even know whether I said that. <laughs> I'm making it up. Okay. Oh, that's a trick question. <laughs> I didn't know that. All right, more, so you're... you're have more trick question. I'm going to need more wine. <laughs> we'll get you more wine. Kelsey's, al Kelsey's already on her way to getting you more wine. 
So, Jacques, at 14, you finished high school yeah. early, and you were apprenticed out, which, yeah. was that typical or unusual? Because that obviously sounds young to us. No, it, it was pretty, yeah, pretty common. I mean, it wasn't high school. It was a, a primary school. In France, at that time, you had to go to school until age 14 to do your certificate d'études primaire, you know, primary uh, and um, so and you I, took a test. Well, yeah, I took those tests, and I was thirteen actually. I was a couple of years ahead, you know, and I was twelve or thirteen when I was in the last class. So uh, it's not that I couldn't have continued in school. My brother continued, and in France, particularly, you don't pay. You go in school if you pass the exam, you you go. You're done. And, you're uh, cooked. So uh, uh, so anyway, uh, but uh, I wanted to work. I wanted to go into the kitchen. And life was very different than now. I'm talking about, you know, almost 80 years ago. So we didn't have the telephone. We didn't have a television. You know, we didn't have a, uh, we didn't have a radio even. Uh, and there was not that many magazines. So life was relatively simpler, certainly much simpler than for kids now. I mean, my father was a cabinet maker you know, doing special furniture. My mother was a cook, so I would be a cabinet maker or a cook. I never thought that I could be, a, I don't know, a doctor or a lawyer. That was so far away from us. So life was, in a sense, simpler. And so I went into apprenticeship, yes, when I was 13. So yes, so it was... Uh, and the, the, the way that you learn at the time was quite different than, uh, than now. Um, at that time, you conform. You know, you go somewhere, and the chef said, "Do that." You would never even have said why, because he would have said, "I just told you." Mm-hmm. That was the, the end of the explanation. So you did that, and you repeat, 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 and after a year, you know, of uh, eviscerating chicken and uh, plucking and uh, and scaling fish and uh, you know, chopping parsley and so forth. So. Um, yeah, a good year of apprenticeship this way and cleaning up and so forth. The chef all of a sudden told you, tomorrow you start at the stove. I had never been close to the stove. Well, I've been close to the stove to put wood in it and coal. At right. that time, that's what we had. But I said, I, I don't know. And I went to the stove and I knew how to do it. You know, so you learn through a type of osmosis. They tell you, you repeat, you tell you, they repeat, repeat. And it becomes part of your DNA you know, as those repeat, repeat, repeat. So that's why, uh, in a sense, for me, to learn those basic techniques is very important because I could be on television to, I can look at the dish and think in terms of, uh, of texture or the color of the dish or taste. I don't have to think about my hand. My hand are just working and doing it, you know. So it is very important to have those basic techniques as a chef. I mean, you see uh, someone who started in the, in the kitchen and fighting about slicing mushroom too, and you come, you say, do you have any parsley? He said, don't disturb me. No, no. <laughs> totally <laughs> obnubilated by the task of slicing mushroom. So, you know, you have to transcend that level and uh, learn those techniques over and over again so that you don't have to think about it. Remember that uh, in a professional kitchen, it's 11 o'clock, and you have 100 people sitting down for lunch at 12, so it's not a question of uh, cooking something good. I mean, you have to produce, and, and so it's a different way of learning that you don't really have to do that at home. But um, this was the way it was, I mean, apprenticeship at the time. It's different, as I say, you conform. You go somewhere and you learn the way they do it in that particular restaurant, and you don't even question it, whether it coincides with your sense of taste or with your sense of aesthetic, has nothing to do with you. You do it the way they do it there, period. Then you move to another restaurant and you learn something else. I work at the Plaza Atene in Paris in the 50s, almost 10 years, and uh, one of the famous dishes was the lobster souffle we did there, where we were 48 chefs, 48 chefs in the kitchen to the big brigade, you know. I'm sure that uh, any one of us could have done the lobster souffle, you would never have known who has done it. You know, that was the idea. As I say, as opposed to now, where the chefs say, make sure they know that, I'm, that, that I did it, I signed it, I created it. <laughs> so there is now a lot of 
creation become very important. At that time, it didn't exist. You know, the food, the cook was really, it was really in a black hole in the kitchen. There was no, uh, any good mother at that time would have wanted her kid to marry a lawyer, a doctor, or not a cook. <laughs> so, when, so. when did the celebrity chef idea evolve? Start changing. Well, I came to America in 1959, and uh, the food food world was very, very small. Within six months after I was here, I knew the the trinity the trinity of cooking in America, which was James Beard, Julia Child, and Craig LeBond, who started at the New York Times. <laughs> it would be unknown now. I mean, the food world is so vast now, but at that time it was very, very small. So. It started changing in the 60s and 70s and so forth with Nouvelle Cuisine and all that. And, uh, and people traveling back to Europe. I mean, I came on a student boat to America. I never took a plane. I went to Columbia University. And at that point, in a couple of years later, in 1962, uh, they had a of plane to go to France for like $300. The first time that I went into a plane, it was still a propeller plane. But yeah. so at that time, people start, you know, traveling Moving. a great deal in Europe and uh, going and experiencing Europe, the market, Italy, France too. So it starts changing that also. And wine, I mean, when I came to America, the wine didn't really existed. I mean, I knew Mondavi not that long after I was here, but uh, you know, I remember. On, the, on First Avenue in 50th Street in New York, that's where I live, uh, center of New York, the market was one salad, iceberg, I said, you know. <laughs> there was no leek, you know, no oriental vegetable, no shallots, or stuff like this. It was another world. Mm. I remember going there and say, where are the mushrooms? They say, aisle five, that was canned mushroom. <laughs> you know, so you had to go. You have to go, so it's a totally different world, you know, so change a great deal. Jacques, I want to go back to the Plaza Athenae for a minute, oh. because okay. in the book, I... I, I I think you'll remember this, um, but if not, I think I might. I loved the French toast recipe. Mm. Like, that's something we could all do. So oh, would yes, you share right. with us yeah, how right. they serve French toast? Even I could do this. Oh, yes. Well, I was the, pitch, the, 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 the breakfast cook at some point there, and you know, a lot of order coming in, too, and a fair amount of it, we had the uh, French toast, and uh, usually you would... Um, Bit and eggs, plus an egg yolk usually, dip your bread into it, sauteed and so forth. But we did their beautiful ice cream, and the ice cream, French style, was done with a creme anglaise, a custard cream, done with egg yolk and sugar and milk, so there was a lot of eggs in it. So all I did in the morning when I came, I took like six or eight or ten balls of, uh, of, uh, of vanilla ice cream and lift it on the counter to melt. And each one I had an order, it was brioche, with a slice of brioche, dip it into melted ice cream and saute it in butter. And so it was a thing. It was a That's what I'm saying. It was, it was easy. I could do that. Save Take the ice cream out of the freezer, yeah. let it melt, dip the brioche okay. in it. <laughs> It's a bit different because often the the, well, of course. the the ice cream is not made with eggs here, the vanilla ice cream. Any ice cream made with eggs? Well, when French ice cream, sometimes if it's specified French ice cream, then it would be done with a creme anglaise, but otherwise not. No. Otherwise not. All right, I'll go but, looking for French right. ice cream. No, it's okay. Even the other one is Just good. use regular ice yeah, cream. Yeah, that's fine. I'm going to do this tomorrow. <laughs> Before I even ask this question, one of the things that was interesting, I mean, I had read The Apprentice, which is Jacques' memoir, which everyone on the planet should read. It's one of the best memoirs ever written. And in reading this book, in many ways, as you land in one place to the other, as you leave Lyon and go to Paris and end up at the Plaza Athenee, and then you come to the U.S. and you're already... Um, working with some of the renowned. I mean, a lot of it 
reads like a fairy tale. And then the fairy tale looked like it was going to extend to John F. Kennedy's White House, who invited you to work, and you turned it down to work for Howard Johnson's, which some people <laughs> might question that decision. But I've heard you, I've heard you talk about this, and and it, I'm a Democrat, you know. <laughs> exactly, and yet you would make the same decision today. I bet. Maybe not, you know, again, 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 you, you have to look at it in the context of the time. As I say, the cook at that time was in the bottom of the kitchen in the back. No recognition at all. I mean, I worked from 56 to 58 for president in France, three president, I finished with the gold. And um, at that time, I remember serving Eisenhower, Nehru, Tito, Macmillan, those were the head of state. And uh, no one will ever call you in the dining room for kudo. <laughs> that absolutely did not exist. I mean, the cook was in the kitchen. That was it. You know, you, you kind of sneak behind the door to try to see, take a look at those people. But that's about it. At that time, well, television barely existed, but I was never interview with a television show or a radio show or a magazine or a thing like that. So that was a different world. You know, as I said, uh, 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 totally different than now. So when I was asked to go to the White House, I was in New York. Is that my telephone? No, no. no. Hope that, uh, it's that yeah. gentleman's <laughs> over there. So uh, <laughs> when I was asked to go to the White House, uh, I was in New York for um, six months, eight months, whatever, work at the pavilion and... Uh, I was starting at Columbia, I, I was doing other things, I had met friends, so I didn't want to move again, and I didn't realize, didn't realize the potential, you know, of being at the White House, because in France, and, and here too, that did not exist. The cook was in the bottom of the social scale. Mm -hmm. And um, on the other hand, Howard Johnson, you know, I learned, uh, I, I knew absolutely nothing about mass production, marketing, different eating American habits and uh, eating habits and so forth. Uh, when I left Howard Johnson, I stayed there 10 years, 1960, 1970. I opened a restaurant on Fifth Avenue called La Potagerie in New York. My production of soup, it was great. Uh, then I opened the World Trade Center with Joe Baum. I set up the commissary who could see 30,000 people a day. I was a consultant. How many? 30,000? Yeah, no, we had, we had 20, over 20 restaurants here. Yeah. So we, I was a consultant for the Russian Tea Room too. I'm, I'm saying all of that to say I would never have been able to do any of those jobs mm -hmm. without the training of Howard Johnson, you know, because uh, I didn't know anything about that type of production. So the one who went to the White House, uh, actually it was in New York, I was with my friend Jean-Claude and Michel. We had an apartment, the three of them together and they say, well, they call me from the White House and they call me again three weeks later. Not the White House, but whoever. Some people. So, yeah, uh, so, uh, and uh, Michel Bonetta, uh, remember, told me, no, I have a friend with the sous chef at the FX house. I think he would be interested. And that was uh, René Verdon and he got the job. Of course, he, mm. wrote a, he wrote a book a number of years later saying that Jacqueline Kennedy came to pick him up in Paris. But <laughs> Not true. <laughs> so anyway. He probably didn't uh, remember the facts either. But, but, but the point is that at that point, I remember in the early 60s, he sent me a picture of him with President Kennedy and Mrs. Kennedy too. That was totally new. Yeah. You know, that one, when he started changing, woman liberation, organic gardening, you know, the early 60s and so forth. Um, if you say, who was the chef at the White House before René Verdon? I have inquired and was told that it was a black, a black woman, from, a black lady from, uh, from the South. No one would have known her mm -hmm. name, no more than my name or whatever, that the way it was. You know, there was yeah. no recognition whatsoever. So in that sense, when people ask me, how could you refuse going the White House to go to Howard Johnson? You have to look at it in the context of the time. It was a different world. Mm. So, yes. so would you have done it differently looking back on it? Oh, no, I don't know. I mean, you know, life is made of little decision. <laughs> like I decided to come to America. Most people come to America to get... To get uh, 
to get a better world, certainly in the sense of to get uh, uh, you know better pay and money, or, to, or because of political reason, or because of uh, of racial reason, or religious reason, or one of those things. I never had that. I mean, I had a great job in Paris. To I worked. So I'd say I'm going to go to America for a year, maybe two years, a bit learn the language, and come back. And I'm here 60 years later. <laughs> so sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes you do a small decision, you go that, and it projects you there, and then you yeah. have another decision that it projects you here. That's what life is made of, you know, so. Yeah. The other striking thing in the book was there was a story of, I think you'd been in the States for three years, and you went home and took a vacation with your family in Spain. And oh, yes. I was hysterical reading about the you, the you had two cars because somebody had you pick up a yes. Volkswagen bug right, and they exactly. had a car, yes. a Panard or a something. Pa- a Panard, yes, an old Panard. And, and your mother or father, your both of them are in front of you, and like carrots are coming out, like the tops of carrots and all of that. So explain how you packed for this trip and how you <laughs> ate on this trip. Well, to start with, <laughs> my mother, father, at restaurant. For so many years, they never took a vacation. That was one of the first vacations they ever took because I was here. And my two brothers, I had one brother who lived in Africa. He was an engineer. He lived in Africa for about 10 years. And another brother in Lyon. So we were all together. My parents decided to close the restaurant for like three weeks a month during the summer, which was totally new. had never happened before. So, uh, of course, Going to Spain at that time, there was no highway. It was all smaller road and different. And of course, my mother took a bunch of pots with her, pot, pants, so forth. So, so we, we go, we stop at the market and we buy stuff. And then she's in the car and peeling string beans and peeling <laughs> <laughs> stuff too with the pellet, who was our friend. And, so, uh, and then we stop, we do a fire, we go by the river, we go swimming <laughs> too, and we cook. And uh, basically, that's, that's the way the vacations were at the time. You and were the my first father, highway rest stops. Yeah, <laughs> and my father was so happy. He loves wine, and, and he decided the wine in Spain were, wine was really cheap in France, but in Spain it was even cheaper. I mean, it was really cheap. <laughs> and he learned how to use that, that, uh, what do you know, that, that leather uh, uh, container. Oh, the con- yeah, what's drink. it called? A uh, boom? I, I forget the name. <laughs> I forget. Yeah. So putting right above his head and bringing it into his... He was a happy guy. And this time he drank some of it, he saved so much money because it was less expensive than in France. So yeah. We save a lot of money. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to skip over this part except for one piece. You talk about the egg. Yes. And the egg and the chicken obviously go together. And... And you talk about it being the most elegant, perfect food. But I do know that you have studied philosophy and philosophers. So I'm hoping that for us, you can answer the big question. Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? No question of the egg. (laughs) (laughs) And why? The eggs is maybe the most um, beautiful shape that you've ever seen. Eggs is extremely secret thing, you know, until you open it and all that. Eggs is very inexpensive. It's great, great. The protein in eggs is as good or better than in meat. So eggs is a universal thing. Eggs may be more than chicken. So uh, I have had eggs, all kind of eggs, I remember doing an omelette. I have my friend Natalia here, a young woman from from Jamaica on the road where I live here. I get my eggs, and she has chicken, and she has duck, and she has thing. I remember years ago, she, I had pheasant, goose. I had like six different types of eggs, quail, and so forth. They did omelette for my wife, so. The, egg, the eggs and all right. the omelette for me. Settled for <laughs> us all now forever. <laughs> yeah, right. We know how to answer that. Right. Uh, Jacques, your book has obviously the most beautiful paintings, all of chickens, which are 
you know, serious, hilarious, colorful. And you've been painting for a really long time, not as long as you've been cooking. But how did you, what prompted you to pick it up? Well, yeah, I've been painting for, I have painting from the early 60s and so forth. The painting in the book, it's Tom who chose them. Where are you, Tom? Tom is there. So Tom Hopkins, who live in Madison as well, uh, we've been friends for 40 years. He's done book for 40 years for me and does the video that we do now, even the Facebook video, he does all of those things. And he's the one who created the... Uh, my art site, by the way, that was never done an art site, you know. So, uh, well, about five, six years ago, about you know, six, seven years ago, we started with the art site. I was married for 54 years, and uh, for 54 years, when people came to my house, we wrote the menu down, and uh, people signed on the other page and said funny things, and... Uh, you know, sometimes we take the label out of the wine to glue it there. Sometimes we wrote the music that we had. So those are a whole life memory, mm -hmm. you know. I have 12 books like that of menu of over 50 years. And my daughter, Claudine, who is in her mid-50 now, came, back, came home a few months ago and she said, what did I eat for my third birthday? I said, let's look. So we looked, and for third birthday, well, she drew a little chicken, whatever, with the front. So, you know, those books uh, are basically my whole life of memory. And I realized that I was drawing a fair amount of chicken there. So I, I draw more chicken and more chicken. And uh, if there is chicken you don't like in that book, it's Tom's fault, because he chose, <laughs> he chose the one he wanted to. The book, There's so. nothing not to love about every chicken in oh, that book. Yeah, right. So uh, now you're in your... Oh, and, and I would say that I was not going to do a cookbook. I have done 31 cookbooks, so I just wanted to do a book of panning and chicken. So my publisher said, yes, yeah, I would love to do it. And as soon as we sent it, I said, okay, and we did recipe with it. I said, I don't want to do recipe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sick so, of it. So I, uh, I did it a little bit like I did in the Apprentice mm -hmm. story, story and all that about chicken. Some are feasible. It's a narrative style, you know. I tell you, my mother used to do this, this, that, and yeah, you can probably do it. Some other one in the old style we cooked in France, using the coxcomb and the wattle and the unborn eggs and truffle and so forth are probably not feasible, but. Uh, this is all story about that, so that's what we end up doing. And, and Jacques, <clears throat> the other thing it reminded me of, like you have a recipe, you talk about using all parts of the chicken and that a lot of yeah. Americans just like take the stuff out of the inside and throw it away. But And one of the things you talk about is chicken crackling, and, and which is frying chicken skin, and it made me think of something that is specific to me, but general as a notion. So my parents are Jewish, my, uh, I'm Jewish, and my uh, mother would make Shabbos dinner. You make chicken soup and all of that, but what she would do to keep the kids amused is fry the chicken skin and give us chicken skin sandwiches. And as I was, I know it sounds horrible, but let me tell you, it's really, there's nothing like chicken fat, anything. But what it made me think about is, as I was reading that part of the book, I could sense the smell of my mother making, we called it grieving, and of her making the grieving. And it made me think about the other element of food is when you walk into someone's house mm -hmm. and there's, you know, either onions in the fry pan or a chicken mm -hmm. in the oven about the sense of smell related yeah. to food. Yeah, those are, those are very uh, visceral memories, you know. Whether you're born in Turkey, in Italy or in Vietnam, the, the dish you had as a child stay with you the rest of your life, you know. Uh, those dishes are greater. 
And those are, as I say, very visceral. And at some point in life, those tastes that you remember, they become more than food. They transcend the level of uh, the physiological function of food. They become love, they become memory, they become home, they become security, they become all of this. You had those kids in, uh, who are in the war in, uh, in Africa or in Vietnam when they were what they think of at night. You know, they'll think of the, the food of their parents and as I say, those food transcend that level. They become much more than food. They become the security, the place, something safe and so forth. So yes, the, those memory of food and those smell that you have in the kitchen stay with you the rest of your life, regardless of where you come mm. from, you know. And those are very important. Jacques, here you are in your 80s, and you've had this incredible career, one reinvention after another, and now you're a social media star. Oh, boy. So <laughs> how did you... Has anybody not seen the videos of... Everybody has seen them. No. So I think they made, you know, millions and millions of people all over the world think that they could cook. But how did you get started doing these videos? And are they... And I know you've been on TV forever. Are they fun to do? Is this to you, another you one the, of Tom's ideas? Yeah, the, the Facebook. Yeah, the Facebook. All thing, the yeah. videos. Yeah, the Facebook too. We started at the beginning of the pandemic, two two and a half years ago, and uh, my daughter Claudine, she lives in the, in Rhode Island, and she said, "Could you do some show, five minutes, four minutes, six minutes, uh, with what you have in your refrigerator or in the in the pantry to to show people." I said, okay, so I started doing that, and Tom and I have done close to 300, right? Yeah, close to 300 of those shows. Usually when we do it, we do 10 a day, you know. And uh, at the beginning, I remember Christine, Tom's wife, was there too, didn't even come into the kitchen to the beginning of the pandemic. They closed, so the kitchen was just Tom and me. I cook, did the dishes, and he shoot with a fixed camera and another one with his telephone on top of me. So we've done, yeah, we've done close to 300 of those videos which are different than, uh, uh, on the other hand, you, you have Instagram and other things that my son-in-law and do that. We have a foundation, the Jacques Pepper Foundation. They show it on that and those are extrapolated from the show that I did at KQED. I have done 13 series of 26 shows. You know, which hmm. is hundreds and hundreds of shows uh, at KQED. So they extrapolate out of this uh, something which are more complicated from boning out a chicken to doing other things. Even shows that I did with Julia Child and so forth. So uh, it's different, but th those Facebook things are very simple, few minute kind of show. And uh, as I say, we started them not too long ago, I mean, about two, three years ago. Yeah. Know? Well, and in fact, speaking of you and Julia Child, so as you know, we go to Maine in the summer, yes. and you probably know this too, there's lobster in Maine, and <laughs> you would think I knew how to make a good lobster salad roll, but I didn't, but then I watched the video with you and Julia, but I'm trying oh, yeah. to figure out the measurements, but with Kevin's help, we figured it out, but I watched the video and then made... Lobster salad yeah, rolls. I, it was great. I, I don't remember that video, but uh, <laughs> yeah. People don't realize that I knew Julia in 1960 until she died, so it was basically half a century. So uh, when I knew her, uh, she, she had never, she was writing, mastering the art of French cooking, and um, she gave a manuscript, or her editor sent a manuscript to. My friend in New York was Helen, Helen McCullough, was the food editor of McCall, How Beautiful, and she got that manuscript to review the book. And uh, she called me and she said, I want you to look at that book, that book I received today, it looks very, it looks great. And I looked, I said, well, that's, that's good, it's terrific. So she said, well, the woman is coming to New York in a few weeks, uh, you want to cook for her? And I said, sure. 
She said, she's a very tall woman uh, with, a, with, with, with a terrible voice. <laughs> so, so, so that's how I met Julia, and Julia, uh, we spoke French actually, the first meeting. Your French was better than the English. She just came back from France for like three years, and I had been here only like six months or whatever. So, so we became friends, and uh, we were friends for all those years, and she lives in Boston, and I teach at Boston University for 40 years now or more. And I will be teaching there next month anyway. So we, uh, I used to go there and always go see her. And we cook together. We teach together at BU and stuff like that. So we had, we had a great time. So when we decided to do series on television together, there is things that we do on television. First, when I did a series with KQED, they say, okay, the show is 30 minutes, about 29 minutes, whatever. So uh, you have to do it on time because editing is too expensive and so forth. So we did like three, four recipes usually. So I have four recipes of the ingredient there. I start cooking and see someone going back, say 15 minutes, 10 minutes, seven minutes, three minutes, one minute, wrap up. So, and then you have to finish your show, so it could be a bit stressing, you know, doing that. So after two series or three that I did this way, I say, you know, I need someone maybe with me, and that's when I took Claudine, my daughter. So cooking with Claudine and encore with Claudine, we did two series of 26 shows where she would be, in a sense, the Vox Populi, the person who would ask me the question that people would want to ask if they could be there. So I say, you know, I cannot do it on time there because, I mean, <laughs> I'm showing the kid how to roll pastry, and she's fighting with the pastry, and I see a guy going back with a sign, five minutes. So I push the kid over, grab the door. So uh, they say, okay, fine, but not too much, because it's expensive, all right, fine. Okay, that's one thing. We did the show with Julia, and in addition to that, when you do a series, you come usually with, a, I think, the manuscript, at least of the book that you're going to do with it, so that the back kitchen and all that have an idea of all the recipe and so forth. You may not follow them exactly, but you have an idea. Well, with Julia, we had no recipe to start with. She said, okay, let's do stew or let's do whatever. So at the beginning, she said, write down a hundred ideas that you have, and I will do. She did, I did. And I think three or four of mine made it. But, uh, so, anyway, so we, we, uh, we pick up recipe like just the day before or whatever. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that timing. Julia would say, okay, we're gonna cook. When it's over, we'll tell you. Okay, so we did some show which were like 80 minutes. You know, like, like three times the amount of time. <laughs> I wonder what happened to the B-roll that we yeah. have. Because Ooh, that's so, a good so idea. We, we, we had no, okay, we had no recipe, we had a lot of wine, <laughs> and, uh, and no time frame. So, I mean, you, you cook, fine. So we had a good time. So that's why it was a different show. It, yeah. Usually they don't do it this way. Yeah, it, they were fun to watch. <laughs> right. Yeah, we, we argue all the time. We, yeah. all, we disagree, I mean, a little bit. Jacques, uh, two last questions, although I didn't get to a lot of them. And one thing I do want to mention is that we didn't get to talk about, but Jacques has started a foundation which does extraordinary work, and you can become a member and get access to bunches of different things. And I would urge all of you to um, go look at, look, what's the, what's the uh, URL, Tom, for the foundation? JPF. Yeah, Foundation. So check that all out. Uh, Jacques, in the introduction, you you have these words, to elevate the most basic need of eating through elegance, refinement, and the beauty of a formal meal, a decorated table, elegantly dressed guests, may just be the pinnacle of what civilization is. Right. And as I read that, I thought, are we losing that? Yes. And how do you think we can preserve it, since is what you've often said, 
is cooking for someone is the purest act of love. So how do you think we ought to be paying attention to that? Well, certainly, especially in our time of, uh, in our time of division and uh, in this country, I remember um, in 1814, the Congress of Vienna in France, when all of the Europe met together for one thing or another, uh, at that time, uh, um, Talleyrand was the French minister of France of Louis XVIII, king at the time, and uh, so he get Karim. Karim was one of the great chefs of the time. And um, the king told uh, Talleyrand, I'm going to give you more advisors. He said, no, I need more cook. You know, so he didn't work. And that was, the, that was the idea. You know, the thing was to sit around the table. The table is a great equalizer. When you're around the table, I invite people for dinner and all that. Even if you disagree, too, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to get as acerbic or uh, virulent that normally. I mean, people will disagree, but uh, maybe in a nicer way. So sitting together, sharing food, cooking together as well, is really a great equalizer. So uh, yes, we don't do enough of that to, to bring people together this way. I remember going to different part of the world, someone in, uh, one time in Yugoslavia, we were driving with Gloria and a couple of friends in a small village in the north of Yugoslavia, and you know, you don't know the language or anything like this. You go there and people say, foreigners, so they open the, the, the curtain, they look at you, you're a foreigner, you're strange, you're dangerous, you know, so. But you sit at the, at the bistro, you know, at the little cafe in the main room, and they look at you, people sit around, you order whatever wine they have there, whatever the food you have, you order by sign usually and so forth. And then you send a bottle of wine to the next table. Within, you know, within an hour, you're fine with people talking too. I mean, food do bring people together. They look at you and say, oh, no, they are not that bad. I mean, they're <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yes, food is very important in politics, in my opinion, and so forth. And I've been, as I say, working with president for many years, but maybe we, we forget about that too mm-hmm. much to bring people together. Yeah. You've had probably thousands and thousands of memorable meals with you know, famous people, not famous people, yeah. family, friends. So Jacques, when you think about the meals that are the most memorable to you, the one or two that sort of fill your brain with just the best sensation? What are those one or two meals? Yeah, it's always going to be with people you love, with the family and all that. That's, you know, I remember those dishes more with, um, you know, my, my wife or my mother than with uh, the greatest restaurant that I've mm-hmm. been to. Yeah. I think those the family, you know, it brings back together a lot. So, yeah. 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 And it's it's important for us to remember that those simple meals, I mean I would I would recall you telling us or Gloria telling us that even the two of you home for dinner would be Gloria would set the table beautifully. Oh, sure. You yeah. would you would have hors d'oeuvres, champagne. We, in those book of menu, we have many, many menu in tête-à-tête. Tête-à-tête, it's an expression in front, head-to-head is just one person where we had, you know, a can of caviar and a bottle of champagne and something, but we wrote the menu. We wrote the menu down as memory. Yeah, yes, right. pretty great. So Jacques, um, we could talk a long time and we didn't get to talk about a lot of other uh, things in the book, but not only do I want to thank you for the book, because I think it's a beautiful book, but it, it does remind us that the simplest of things, the simplest yes. of sitting down and maybe just scrambling an egg, right. um, and of course a glass of wine, yeah. is about, and being with family or friends yeah. is about the most perfect thing that we can do. Yeah. 
if, if you have uh, organic eggs and good butter. Oh, by the way, by, speaking of that, one thing I forgot to mention or have you elaborate on, we do know you're thrifty in the supermarket, with one exception, eggs. Well, I buy my eggs from Natalia anyway. I mean, the chickens are happy. You know, the chickens are happy. They're going around, they're running. Look at that book, you look at the back of it. See, there is a picture of me with uh, two chickens on my shoulder. And that, that's, that's at Natalia there. And Tom, Tom came there and he said, I put a chicken on your shoulder. Chicken were very happy to with. Yeah. Jacques, I think we've had many conversations in front of audiences, oh, yeah. not in front of audiences, and it always makes for one of the happiest days I can enjoy. So and thank you. Thank you always. Need a great conversation. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Just the Right Book is not just a podcast. JustTheRightBook.com is a highly personalized book subscription service. It's good for readers of all ages. We have decades and decades of bookselling experience at RJ Julia's, and they're the ones who are selecting these books. Here's what happens. We get tons and tons of letters. We've been around for over 10 years, and the letters always are a version of this. I can't believe you picked out this book. I would have never picked it out. And guess what? It was just the right book. So visit justtherightbook.com for details and begin your subscription today. Of course, we have a promo code for you. So if you go to justtherightbook.com, use the promo code podcast and you will get 15% off on your subscription at justtherightbook.com. You are listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Gino Cardone at Pleasant Podcast. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I am Roxanne Cody. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have any comments, observations, suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at justtherightbook at rjjulia.com.